we read responsibly Psalm 32, which I mentioned before is the focus of our sermon message this, this day as we focus on ancient hymns of the faith for today. Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Indeed, friends in Christ, our Lord forgives our transgressions against him and covers our sin with the blood of his Son, our Savior. Alleluia. Amen. The epistle lesson appointed for this Sunday is from Romans chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. And these words are very timely in that as our country undergoes much unrest, and even as we approach an election, it's always important to hear what God's Word has to say about the governing authorities. And that's what Paul speaks to here. And please note that as Paul speaks here, he's speaking about the Roman government, which is really quite corrupt, run by Nero, in fact, will be responsible ultimately for executing Paul for his Christian faith. And yet these are the words that he, he writes. Romans chapter 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God according to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other covenant, commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading appointed for this Sunday is from the gospel of Matthew, the 18th chapter. And if you're so inclined, please rise out of respect for our Lord to hear his word. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them. And he said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it, tear it out, and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man came to save the lost. And what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more, more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of the Father, of my Father, who is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, then take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be given for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Well, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The text for this morning's message, as I've said a couple times already in this service, is Psalm 32, an ancient hymn of the faith that is very relevant for today. And at this time, I wanted to read the first five verses of this hymn for you once again. King David is the author of this hymn, and he writes, 
Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and you, O Lord, forgave the iniquity of my sin. Are you in search of genuine happiness? Then look no further than the first two verses of our text, this ancient hymn of faith. Blessed are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the person against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The word blessed can actually be translated, oh, the happiness of the person. So let's read those words again. Oh, the happiness of the person whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Oh, the happiness of the person against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Genuine happiness is directly linked to God's benevolence. More specifically, genuine happiness is linked to God's forgiveness of our transgressions of God covering our sin, of God's intentional refusal to take a consensus or conduct a census of our iniquity. God forgives our trespasses, which means that he chooses to forget our defiant rebellion against him. And it's not that he takes our sin lightly. It's not that God ignores our sin. It's not that he just accepts us for the way that we are. No. God forgives us of our sins for some very specific reasons. And we're going to unpack some of those reasons in this sermon this morning. The psalmist says in his hymn that God covers our sin. He conceals it. He hides it from his sight. The word cover used in this text, is also used in reference to the pillar of cloud that would cover the tabernacle as the people of Israel were wandering through the wilderness and they would settle. But the cloud would cover the tabernacle and they knew that God was present among them. But they could not see the tabernacle. When I was looking at this text, it reminded me, uh, oftentimes I would be driving along the highway in British Columbia and I'd come upon Mount Robson, which has the highest peak of the Rocky Mountains, And on a clear day, I could see that peak, and it was magnificent. But on a cloudy day, the clouds would hover over the peak, and you could not see it. In fact, there were days I would drive past Mount Robson, and I wouldn't even know the mountain was there, had it not been for a sign that pointed and said, Mount Robson, this way, because the clouds just so covered the mountain, you literally could not see it. And when the text tells us that God covers over our sin, it's that kind of idea. God does not see the mountain of our sin, of our trespass. 
But there's even more to this word cover than, than that idea. The word cover also reminds us of the Ark of the Covenant that was in the tabernacle. For on the Day of Atonement, the priest would sacrifice a goat, and then he would go into the tabernacle, and he would sprinkle the blood of the goat on the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. And the book of Leviticus tells us that in this way, the priest made atonement for the uncleanness and the rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins may have been. This act on the Day of Atonement assured the people of Israel that the blood of the goat covered their sin. That God no longer looked at them and saw their sin. He put it from his sight. More significantly, the blood of that goat on the Day of Atonement assured the people of Israel, and it assures us, that there would be another goat sacrificed, our Savior, who would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. And it's this goat of a Savior who we know to be Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who shed his blood for us so that it would cover over all of our sins. And when God looks at you and me, the blood of Jesus hides our sins from, from the eyes of God. Hence the reason why the psalmist also says that God does not keep a census of our iniquity. He refuses. God literally refuses to keep track of the times that we have sinned. Every time we've missed the mark, that perfect mark that God sets before us, it's not like he goes, oop, there's another one, oop, there's another one, oop, there's another one, and keeps track. No. He completely forgets it. He doesn't take tabulations. Why? Because our sin has been charged to Christ's account. God's Son became covered in our sin. He became cursed by our sin. He became condemned for our sin when he died on the cross. Those of you who are in my Bible class on the book of Romans know that Paul describes a courtroom scene. And in that courtroom scene, we the sinners stand before God and we are condemned for our sin. And we have every right to be judged to eternal death in hell. But in Romans, Paul reminds us that because of Christ. God does not count our sins against us. Instead, Jesus steps forward in that courtroom and says, God, I died for that person. I died for Pastor Schaefer. I died for the people of St. James. I died for the people of this world. Cast their sins on me. And amazingly, in his love, God does just that. He puts our sins on Jesus. And he looks at us and he says, I don't count your sins against you. You are acquitted. You are free. That's why it's kind of interesting that St. Paul actually quotes the first two verses of our text in Romans chapter 4. As he is proving to the people in the church in Rome that we are saved not by our works but by what Christ has done for us. He says, he, he, he quotes these two verses and says, no. God covers over our sin. He no longer counts our sins against us because Christ died for us.
And so he says in Romans 3, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but are justified freely by, the, by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. And so happy is the Lord, or happy is the person who knows that the Lord forgives him or her of their sin. In verse 2, the psalmist also says, Oh, the happiness of the person in whom there is no deceit. We are inclined to conceal our sin, to conceal our transgressions. We disguise our sin so that other people won't see it, and even sometimes to try to fool ourselves. We deny our iniquity. We explain it away. We rationalize it. But there are serious ramifications when we deny our sin, when we refuse to repent of it. And the hymn writer in this, in this hymn describes his own predicament. He writes, For when I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I can relate to those words. And I'm sure you can too. As you have felt the weight of the Lord's hand upon you for some sin that you have denied, for some sin that you've committed and have refused to take responsibility for before him. There's a pain that is involved in unconfessed, unresolved, in denied sin and its consequences before God and for us and for our neighbor. And it's felt literally in our bones and our heart, isn't it? Yes, we have experienced, I have experienced guilt and shame and regret over sins that I've committed against God. And those feelings are then internalized, just as the psalmist did. He internalized it. And we groan and we moan. And our heart may race. Anxiety arises. We toss, we turn, we have restless nights of sleep. We have horrible dreams, like plants in the heat of the summer, in a time of drought, when moisture and rain and dew is withheld. We, we wither, we dry up, we're beaten down slowly decay we slowly wilt and happiness it's fleeting at best if it exists at all job felt this way when the weight of god's hand was upon him and he cried out withdraw your hand from me o lord and stop frightening me with your tears in psalm 38 david laments in that hymn, my wounds fester and are loathsome because of my sinful folly. I am bowed down and brought very low. All day long I go about mourning. My back is filled with searing pain. There is no health in my body. I am feeble and utterly crushed. I groan in anguish of heart. It's no wonder that William Shakespeare said that guilt is life's fitful fever. It's not pleasant to experience those moments, is it? When we deny our sin, 
when we refuse to confess it before the Lord and we refuse to resolve it. But as difficult as that time may be, that season in our life may be, the reality is that God can use those times to open up our eyes to the reality of our sin, to convict us of it so that we do confess it to God and finally come before Him and admit that we have sinned against Him in our thoughts, words, and deeds by what we've done and by what we haven't done. And we can be thankful for those moments of wrestling because it does wake us up because the consequences of not waking up and taking responsibility for our sin before God has eternal consequences. Eternal consequences that can result in eternal death. And so God uses those moments to bring us to our knees, so to speak, so that we confess openly our sin against Him. Not just against other people, but against Him. Emperor Frederick the Great once spoke to someone of the prisoners in the prison at Potsdam. Each one claimed to be innocent, a victim of, a, of the system, a false accusation, an injustice. One prisoner, however, did not come forward to talk to the king or the emperor, but sat silently over in the corner. So the emperor went to him and, and he asked, and you, sir, who do you blame for your sentence? And his response was, your majesty, I am guilty and I deserve my punishment. Surprised, the emperor shouted for the prison ward, come and get this man out of here before he corrupts all of these innocent people. Yes, one man was honest about his predicament, wasn't he? Chuck Colson, some of you will remember him, from Watergate fame, who ultimately became a Christian, very engaged in prison ministry, was once asked, what is the one message that you would give to our culture? And his response, sin. He goes on to say, sin. We have lost our concept of sin. And without an understanding of sin, the gospel has no meaning. It simply becomes one of life's helpful aids rather than the cure for the most fundamental disease of humanity. St. Augustine said, the beginning of knowledge is to know yourself as a sinner. That's the beginning of knowledge, to know yourself as a sinner. And I think Martin Luther kind of adds to it by saying, the error of neither knowing nor understanding what sin is is usually brings with it another error, and that of neither knowing nor understanding what grace is. In other words, if you don't understand the significance of your sin and how it separates you from the God who created you, nor will you really understand the depths of God's love for you and his willingness to even have his son sacrificed on the cross to cover over our sins. That's why the writer in our hymn says, I acknowledged my sin to you, O Lord, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. In verse 5, David employs three verbs for confession. He says, I will acknowledge, I will not hide, I will confess. This repetition emphasizes that genuine confession happens only when it's voiced to God. 
In Proverbs 28, verse 13, we read, No one who conceals transgressions will prosper, but one who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Cornelius Plantinga, Jr., observes that frank and painful confession of sins is as necessary as taking out the garbage. He writes, the problem is that sin is like garbage. You don't want it. You don't want to let it build up. Confessing sin is like taking out the garbage. You want to do it regularly because taking out the garbage is an extremely healthy thing to do. Friends, it's good and healthy for us to take out the garbage in our life once in a while, to acknowledge that we have garbage in our life, to confess our transgressions before God, to confess our, our sin before Him, to come before Him and admit that we have iniquities that, for, that should forever separate us from Him. Yes, it's a healthy thing to do, to take out the garbage once in a while. It's healing, it's liberating, it brings genuine happiness. Peace of mind when you know that you're right with the Lord. You see, confession and repentance opens up our eyes to see the need for our Savior, to see Jesus as our Savior. And listen to what God promises as we confess our sin to Him. He says, you forgive the iniquity of my sin. David knew that as he confessed his sin to God, God would forgive the iniquity of David's sin. As you and I confess our sins before God, what does God do? He forgives the iniquity of our sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, John writes. But if we confess our sins, God who is faithful and just will forgive us of all of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so my encouragement to all of you today is take out the garbage. Confess your sin, knowing that God loves you and forgives you for Jesus' sake. In his book, Jesus the Fool, Michael Frost recounts an episode that he saw on Current Affair. The episode focused on a young man who was driving home one afternoon. He had had too much to drink. And he lost control of his vehicle and he ended up killing a young girl. He was charged for manslaughter and he was found guilty. But because of his good behavior and a previously unblemished record, the judge put him on, good, on a good behavior bond for a few years. Well, the deceased girl's parents were enraged. They were incensed. How could the life of their daughter be worth so little? And so the parents decided to sue the young man for damages incurred by the death of their daughter. And the case went to court, and as expected, the judge ruled in favor of the parents. And the judge fixed the sum to be paid by the youth to the parents of the girl. The judge's decision was not unexpected. But what was quirky about the decision was the manner in which the young man was sentenced to pay the sum of damage. The young man was to pay the plaintiffs $1 a week for some considerable number of years. He had to write a check every week, writing the girl's name, the deceased girl's name on the check, and paying it on the day that he had killed her. Now we can appreciate the parents' grief. 
their frustration and anger at the light sentence that this man was given. If we found ourselves in a similar circumstance, we would probably sue for damages as well. We'd want justice. We can hardly imagine the relief the parents felt when this judgment was handed down. But then an unthinkable thing happened. After many months went by, the young man stopped making the payments. Why couldn't this man manage paying $1 a week? Well, a reporter went to visit the young man. And as the young man faced the camera, he sobbed with uncontrollable remorse, and through his tears he wailed, It's not having to pay a dollar that I object to. In fact, I'll pay anything. I'll spend the rest of my life in prison. I'd sacrifice anything rather than write those checks. His eloquence was shattering as he explained that those checks were a constant reminder to him that he wasn't yet and never would be forgiven of his mistake. I just want to know that they forgive me, he wept. I would do anything for that. Our Heavenly Father does not harbor hate or revenge towards us. He does not make us, so to speak, write out a check listing all of the sins that we committed this past week so he can hold it before our eyes, the guilt of our sin. Instead, our Heavenly Father loves us so very much that he wounded his own son, that his own son was willing to go to the cross and give his life for you and me and for all the people of this world so that we might know that God truly forgives us. I just want to know that they forgive me. I just want to know that God forgives me. And the cross reminds me that he does. The baptismal font is where God washes away my sin and your sin too. In the absolution, We confess our sins, and then God assures us that our sins are forgiven. He remembers them no more. Today, many of you will come to the Lord's Supper, and you'll partake of the very body and blood of Christ that was given and shed for you, that covers over all your sin, and you're going to hear that word of forgiveness announced to you. I just want to know that God forgives me. He does. He does in Jesus Christ. Oh, the happiness of the person whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. He's speaking of you and me. Oh, the happiness of the person whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. That's you and me, in whose spirit there's no deceit. We've come clean, Lord. Forgive us for Jesus' sake. I acknowledge my sin to you, O Lord, and I did not hide my iniquity from you. I've confessed my transgressions to you, O Lord, and the Lord forgives the iniquity of our sin. Sometimes we talk about our happy place. It's good to have a happy place. Well, I hope your happy place is parked right here in this text. Psalm 32. Because I can't think of a better place to go to experience happiness than to hear right from the words of the Lord that he forgives me my sin, that my sins are covered over. 
I can't think of a happier place to go than to, to go into his word where he takes me to the cross, where he takes me to the empty tomb, where he reminds me of the blessings of baptism and the blessings of confession and absolution and the blessings of the Lord's Supper. For there is true, genuine happiness found in Christ alone. It's no wonder that the psalmist ends this psalm, this song in verse 11 by saying, Rejoice in the Lord and be glad. You righteous, sing. All you who are upright in heart, sing. Yes, we can sing. Because we have genuine happiness in our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And now may the peace of God which surpasses all understanding guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.